Sun Tzu, the Chinese strategist, tells us that strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. But tactics without strategy is just noise before defeat. My name's Jim Molan, and welcome to our Noise Before Defeat podcast. Welcome back to the Noise Before Defeat podcast. This is our third episode of a six-part series with Senator Jim Molan. Last week, we explored the possibility of and our preparedness for major modern warfare, and today we're back to dive a little deeper into our vulnerabilities as a nation. Senator, welcome back. As always, let's start with the lay of the land, some of the key terms you'll be using today, and why you think it's so important for us to look at our vulnerabilities. Uh, thanks, Sarah. It's, it's certainly good to be back for the third podcast. And we're looking today at those vulnerabilities that are internal to the nation, internal to Australia, as distinct from those that might be thrust on us from outside. And I've called this podcast, Markets Produce Prosperity not security. Markets produce prosperity and not security. And we in the Liberals are supporters of market forces, but as Conservatives, we are outcome-focused and not ideological. And it's very important for us to continue to focus on practical outcomes above all else. And what the title acknowledges is that globalisation and market forces, as we discussed in the last podcast, produce great wealth for this nation. But we don't rely on the markets to produce the military that defends us. And from mm. now on, the Australian manufacturing base, our innovation capability, our diplomacy, our education system, our energy system, and our social stability are all as important for national security as is the military. And you can make the argument even that it's probably more important. Yes, I think the first few episodes have helped debunk the misconception many of us might have started with, and that I certainly started with, that national security is purely about the military and defence. Yes. And this podcast will look at why Australia is so vulnerable to a national security shock. And of course, We've just had an enormous one of those in the form of COVID. We're still living through it. Mm. It'll look at why Australia lacks self-reliance as a nation. And as a result, Australia is not prepared for an uncertain future that may involve conflict and war. Australia's very sovereignty, our independence, and perhaps our existence as a nation would be seriously threatened unless we start to prepare. Yeah, so as you mentioned, we will be covering both the internal and external vulnerabilities that we need to address in order to be better prepared. And it won't be all doom and gloom. We will also be looking at Australia's strengths, of which there are many in a later episode. But today, let's focus specifically on our domestic vulnerabilities and go through things sort of step by step. What do you see as our key domestic vulnerabilities in terms of national security? Well, quite simply, I reckon there are five vulnerabilities. In essence, Australia is overly dependent on imports to run the nation. And as I say all the time, we're not self-reliant enough, as we found out in COVID. We are overly dependent on one single market and the sea lanes for exports and imports that make us prosperous. And China is using that against us now. In essence, Australia has a military developed for a different era and a different task. It's very high quality. It's the best that I have seen it in the 50 years that I've been exposed to the Australian military. 
Uh, it's a fabulous base for development, but it's incapable at its present size of defending the nation now or in the foreseeable future. And we've covered in our episode so far just how different the strategic landscape is from the last time we were really put to the test. Yes, and Australia has a national security system which is not appropriate for conflict. It's been developed in the different times for a different kind of threat. That is, who makes the decisions, how decisions are made, and what we do during crisis. And finally, as the result of all of these vulnerabilities, we are at risk of becoming complacent and sometimes delusional as a society. And in some ways, that is the biggest vulnerability that we have. That introduction appeals to my love for bullet points so much. (laughs) So now we have a bit of a mind map to follow throughout the rest of this episode. Let's go a little deeper into each point. And how about we start with your first point on imports? I think we all understand how dependent we are on consumer imports because, of course, that affects us in our daily lives. But how much further does it go? Uh, I I suggest it goes a long way further than just the kind of running shoes and T-shirts that we get from overseas because they're cheap. (laughs) We're overly dependent on imports of manufactured goods and the import of information technology devices. We're overly dependent on critical items such as liquid fuels, fertiliser, pharmaceuticals and many others. We need to import complex spare parts in industry, for example, the energy industry and the mining industry, defence items and spare parts and technical uh, weapons such as missiles. And all of this could be denied to us by an increase in tension or by war. Liquid fuels, for example. At the moment, we import roughly 90% of our liquid fuels directly as crude oil or as a refined product. And where does it come from? One of the most unstable places in the world. It all comes from the Gulf, either as crude directly to Australia or as crude to other refiners in North Asia who then send it back to us. So we are totally vulnerable to that. But I do note that we have taken a major step forward very, very recently in that the uh, Minister for Energy has started seriously to ensure that we keep our refining capability and we start building reserves of liquid fuels in this country. Now, pharmaceuticals is another one that we should be worried about. 90% of our pharmaceuticals are important. During the initial stages of COVID, yes, we did have some reserves and and that was a great discovery that I was not aware of. We did have reserves in this country of pharmaceuticals, Mm. Uh, but we came close to running out in some areas. And of course, we saw recently some union bans uh, on ports that are achieving exactly the same thing now. And that's a real vulnerability for us. And I often talk about fertilisers. We can produce fertilisers in Australia. It's not that difficult. It's energy intensive. But at the moment, we we import 90% of our fertilisers. We're not going to go hungry in this country because we are an extraordinary food producer, but we need to make fertilisers to a certain level in this country so we can expand it if we ever had to. Mm. And while it's not the only factor, as we've now heard, consumer goods are still a big part of our imports. So what about our vulnerability there? Well, in relation to manufactured goods, 30% of all the goods that we consume are imported. And most are top-of-the-line items, very complex goods, not simple things. So this is why I'm saying that if we have to look for a single point of failure, a single vulnerability in this country, that single point of failure is our ports. 
due to our total reliance on importing consumer items and exporting resources. Well, that's the flip side of the coin then, isn't it? In the areas where we do actually have domestic production capacity, we often export a lot of those goods overseas. So what are our vulnerabilities there on that side of the equation? What are the big risks of those we depend on wielding their buying power against us? Well, yes, it's not what we export, it's where we export it to, and therein lies the problem. We are overly dependent on a single export market, and that's China. Mm. And if that was denied to us by one nation or by increases in regional tensions or actual war, our prosperity would drop significantly. Social tension would increase, our ability to fund recovery or adaption would decrease, and our ability for sustained defence would evaporate because we would run out of missiles and spare parts. Yeah, so there are definitely some vulnerabilities that could heavily affect our national economic position. But as you mentioned, and as the title of this episode suggests, a prosperous economy still doesn't necessarily guarantee overall security from a defence perspective. So what about direct security threats to Australia? What is our current national security system? Do we even have a strategy in place? What is that strategy? Talk to us about that. Well, uh, we don't have a current comprehensive overall strategy. What the government of which I'm a part does brilliantly is solve problems one at a time. And uh, even whilst working on COVID, I was blown away by the fact that the Prime Minister could come out and address a strategic update in terms of a defence strategy. And, And we're looking at, we've looked at cyber and we've looked at energy and we've looked at gas and we've looked at a vast range of things. So it's not, a, it's not as though we're a one-trick pony. <laughs> but what I would say is that the basic thing that we must address is our self-reliance. And I use that term all the time. And in fact, everyone in government is using that term in relation to self-reliance because we've all realised that both in government and across the nation, that we need to be much more self-reliant. And we will be hearing a lot more about this concept of self-reliance. So, Senator, can you quickly explain that term just a bit more before we move on? Well, self-reliance, I consider to be where a nation makes domestically what it needs for its security, but still buys everything else from the global market. Now, if you say that one particular thing is essential for us to be prepared to make in Australia, it doesn't mean that you have to make all of it and you have to make it now. Mm. Uh, It does mean that you must be able to make enough of it And then you buy the rest cheaper from overseas in Australia so that if you have to expand at some stage when you are cut off from sea lines of communication, then you can actually do that. You have the technology and the base to expand and be self-reliant. For the rest of it, until something happens, you can buy from overseas. In no way in the world am I ever suggesting that we back off from globalisation. We just need to identify, and this is the job for government, We need to identify those items that are critical for us and how much we need to produce in Australia so that in a certain period of time, when perhaps reserves that we've got run out, we are ready to produce much, much more. Mm, So we're not talking all or nothing, but more just a matter of degree. Yes. I look at the global market. I look at our our imports and I don't care if we don't have, as I said before, running shirts and running shoes and T-shirts during a period of crisis. We don't need them. But I do care if we cannot produce certain pharmaceuticals in Australia, or I do care if we can't produce petroleum products in Australia. As a self-reliant nation, we must still be able to import and to export. We have just to identify 
across the nation every single item that needs to be a bit produced in Australia and the time period that we need to have reserves in Australia of that particular item. Yeah, so nothing in the extreme, just in areas of importance. Now, what I don't want Australia to ever consider becoming is what is called self-sufficient. Mm. And self-sufficient really means that you produce not what you need in a crisis time, but you produce everything that you want in Australia. That's silly. It would cost us a fortune and no one in the world can do it. Even North Korea is not quite self-sufficient and who wants to be like North Korea? But just going back to the question that you asked, really our national security system, which is that system of cabinet, national security committee of cabinet, officials, committees and various things like that, our national security system as part of this strategy, I believe is suboptimal at the moment because in the past it's been optimised and built up for natural disasters, which it handles well. Counter-terrorism, which we handle very well. Stability operations, such as in East Timor, which we we handle adequately, but if we had to do it today, we would do it much, much better in relation to government functions than we did it during those times. Mm. Uh, It can also handle small foreign deployments such as Korea, Malaya, Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan with our alliance partners. But I don't believe that it is optimised for a major war. And as I say, even if there was only a 1% chance of a major war occurring, and I believe it's vastly greater than 1%, then we should be prepared for it. So what is the process of the current system? Can you run us through that? Well, our national security system within government has its roots, unfortunately, in a process-driven committee system, which is invariably overruled in any more complicated and fast-moving situation. And that system really is not based on a comprehensive strategy covering the entire nation. It takes an individual crisis point and it solves that. It doesn't accommodate the obvious need for all ministries to contribute to national security. It doesn't stop them from doing it, but it makes it difficult. In the future, every part, every minister, every department, every agency must contribute to national security. So our national security system has no one organisation responsible for developing national strategy. It doesn't have this system to prepare our nation and it doesn't have those professionals for advising the national leadership, particularly the Prime Minister, during a serious ongoing crisis because we haven't needed it in the past and and for 75 years we haven't had to do it. And I just add to that as the last point, we currently have a military developed for the needs of the last 75 years. And as I've said before, it's a great military. It is so highly professional. It's like the entire military is what some people call their special forces. And it's very good for wars of choice. Uh, Those kind of wars that we've conducted for 75 years, where readiness was not a big issue. The most expensive part of any military is being ready to go to war tomorrow. So most of our military is not ready to go to war tomorrow. It trains and it could become much more prepared relatively fast. And that's the judgment that you've got to make. But that's where the big money is. We need to examine that military and see whether it is its preparedness is high enough and what it would cost to raise that if we decided. But primarily, it lacks serious and self-reliant lethality, mass 
and sustainability for the rapidly developing future. And that military cannot in any way defend this nation against the developing threats that most people agree are coming towards us now. I do acknowledge, and I should, to be fair, acknowledge the extraordinary achievements within defence that the coalition government since 2013 has embarked on, particularly the shipbuilding programs, particularly the adequate resourcing of that military in order to provide the kind of military we've needed for the last 75 years. The point I make is that Having done that, and it's a great achievement, and I personally thank them as someone who has a great love for our military, I personally thank our government, but now we need to look at the next step. Again, you've really got the cogs turning today. So looking at those deficiencies in the current system, what would you actually change? I think the thing that comes to mind for me at the moment is the idea that in terms of preparation, everything feels like overkill until you actually need it. And then you wonder why you didn't do more. And I really don't envy the great responsibility of deciding how much to spend on being ready to go tomorrow. So what would you actually change? Sarah, you make a very good point that everything is overkill until you need it. And this is all about risk. If a government or a nation hasn't sat back and said to themselves, what exactly do we need in all of these possible and optional futures that may come down the track towards us? If we haven't decided what we need, how can we make a decision as to what risk we take in funding it or not funding it? Mm. And this is the point that I try and make all the time. If we don't analyse what we need, I don't care whether we spend a cent on it, but at least we should understand how much risk we're taking by not funding whatever we decide that we need. As we've discussed in this, the markets make us prosperous, but they'll never make us secure. Only governments make us secure and only governments can give us the strategy that we need to look at this as a comprehensive whole. And security in non-military areas, such as we've discussed before in relation to manufacturing, requires market intervention. And in this government, we accept that because we are a practical government, and I think that's absolutely key. You know, we've been brilliantly globalised over many, many years now. We've accepted the challenge of globalisation. We're an extraordinary country with an extraordinary capability to trade, and as a result, we're very, very rich as a nation. Mm. And that globalised approach, willingness to accept globalisation and trade with the world has given us all that prosperity, but it's not going to make us secure. In fact, it has made us very, very vulnerable and we've got to accept that. And the biggest thing that I would change, and we could do it without spending a cent, is to start thinking about all of this. The derivation of strategy is an intellectual exercise. It doesn't require 200,000 people. It doesn't require ships, planes, tanks, guns, or whatever. It is an intellectual exercise by smart people, and we are fundamentally a smart nation. But you did mention perhaps a complacent nation at some times. That's really what this podcast is all about. The complacency aspect is, why should we worry? Uh, And perhaps the greatest vulnerability that we face is a belief from our experience of the last 75 years that major power war is something of the past, that if it did occur, it wouldn't impact us, Mm. that the US anyhow is so strong that it would always rescue us and, and 
everyone loves Aussies. <laughs> None of this is true and such complacency is fundamentally dangerous. And the kind of delusion that arises from this is based on a reliance on hope rather than a real strategy. We need a real strategy based on self-reliance and strength. Remember that we've been through this before. We could be dumped by the US in whatever way they might help us. And in my view, we will get very little help from the US should there be a, a significant war because their hands will be filled. We mm. could be dumped by the US as we were dumped by the UK in 1940 and 1941. If we look at the last time we faced similar challenges, Prime Minister Churchill was more than happy to sacrifice Australia in order to defend India in World War II. The imperial strategy that we subscribe to as Australians, it was a farce from 1920s onwards because it relied on a Royal Navy fleet coming to support Singapore, the key thing that stood between us and the Japanese. And that fleet, everyone knew, would never come if the Germans were actually active in the North Sea. And everyone knew that that was happening. So the fleet had to stay back there. So the 20s and the 30s, and you might remember the Prime Minister expressed a kind of a concern that he has about the 20s and the 30s in that it's echoing what he sees as might be going on at the moment. We knew this in the 20s and the 30s, but we preferred through those decades to ignore the fact of the real threat to this nation. This is what the Prime Minister was referring to when he launched the Defence Strategic Update some time ago. If we take that approach, the approach of the 20s and the 30s, where we ignore the facts of strategy, we almost paid an extraordinary price as a nation. You know, when a token fleet of one very old battleship and one very, very new battleship was finally sent to Singapore, they were sunk in an hour or so by the Japanese Air Force. Very easily sunk and the bottom fell out of our strategy. Why? Because we relied on other people to support us. Malaya, Singapore, Southeast Asia and, and New Guinea fell and Darwin was bombed. Let's never make the same mistake of over-reliance on others. Let's, for the first time in our history, be prepared for conflict. And I have to say that this government, this coalition government can do it. So where do you think that then leaves us from a domestic perspective? What do you think the big action points need to be for us to do it? Yes, and the big action point should fall out of a strategy, but my offering to such a strategy would be we need to develop self-reliance in what items we need in a crisis situation. And I always refer back, who cares whether we've got running shoes and T-shirts in a crisis, but we need fuel, we need medicines, we need spare parts, and we may need weapons. So that's the first action point. The second action point is that we need to diversify our export markets so we remove that vulnerability entirely. Of course, we should trade with China. We should be very, very welcoming of China, if for no other reasons than for the simple reason they have raised such an extraordinary percentage of their people out of poverty. Mm. We should trade with China to the maximum extent we can, but never if it goes against our interests. And it only goes against our interest if we offer up a highly vulnerable export market. We should create a military that can defend the nation and support coalitions if we need to. And that military needs to be much stronger, much bigger and better supported so it can fight for longer. 
we need to create a government national security system which is far more sophisticated and sophisticated enough to prepare us for conflict and a fast-moving war and manage 21st century crises. And finally, realistically and publicly, we need to address the need for national security. And I can't say it often enough, we must begin with a national security strategy to tie it all together. Well, again, I think that's left us with much to think about in terms of our domestic position and internal preparedness. If you did enjoy listening along, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend. Next week, we'll be back to shift the focus beyond our borders to consider the international risks and challenges we face. Make sure you tune in next week to episode four of Noise Before Defeat. For further information on the topics we covered today or to learn more about the Senator's plan for a national security strategy, please visit his website, jimmolan.com.